one of the things that I have always loved and admired about space exploration is that it is driven by this collective desire to understand more about how our universe began, what state it's in today, and why it is that way. Scientists can get a great deal of insight into these questions by measuring signals in the terahertz spectrum, which includes frequencies on the order of 10 to the 11th and 10 to the 13th hertz. The terahertz spectrum gives us information on the composition of interstellar gases, the detection of water on other planetary bodies, and other dynamic processes in planetary atmospheres, such as radiation balance, changes in our ozone, and volcanic activity within our solar system. By studying our universe this way, we can peer into the early days of the universe to better understand its state and composition, along with how it has developed over time. And if any of that intrigues you and you're interested in what kind of technology goes into helping us get this information, then stay tuned for this epic two-part series. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering, the podcast which aims to explore the details behind how spacecraft and various payloads come together before launch and the lessons learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and in today's episode, we'll be exploring some antics in the terahertz spectrum. As I mentioned before, the science that you can do with these higher frequencies is pretty powerful, but making this possible requires precise instrumentation that can collect data as accurately as possible, so that way we can learn as much as possible with the information that we gather. And there is a heck of a lot that goes into these systems, cryogenics, optics, signal processing, well-designed thermal control, etc. I will stop myself there before I get carried away. But today we're only going to focus on one aspect of these systems, which is low noise amplifiers. Now, these boost an incoming signal captured by a telescope using very low noise electronics, so the signal is very clear and distinguishable from other unwanted signals that are introduced by the system. Now, these electronics are being actively developed in world-class research facilities and in a basement at ASU. Now that, that is actually not as lame as it sounds. <laughs> the basement of ASU's ISTB4 building has some pretty top-notch facilities, some of which are dedicated to developing these low-noise amplifiers to aid terahertz research. It's also where we developed and assembled the Phoenix CubeSat, which, if you are new to this podcast, was a CubeSat that I worked on at ASU to study urban heat islands. So in today's episode, I got to chat with Justin Mathewson and Jonathan Ho about their work in ASU's terahertz lab, the science studies that result from it, and the antics that ensue along the way. This includes the tale of the Great Basement Flood, which was a wild day, and if you want to hear about that story, that's in part two of this episode. The projects they work on are so, so cool. They're the type of thing that gets me really excited about space research and remind me why I chose this field in the first place. So I'm really excited that I got the chance to do an episode on the work that they do. We actually ended up talking for like three hours about all of this and like a bunch of other things. So, and I wanted to keep as much of it as possible because I just loved all of it. Uh, it was a really, really fun conversation to have. So I split this episode up into two parts. So if you enjoy this conversation, then definitely go and check out part two. Also, I, one thing I do want to note about this episode is that it was recorded like way back in September before school and work just got really, really busy. So that, you know, hopefully helps you understand more of the context of what we're talking about in the beginning of the episode and where things in the lab were. But that is enough of my rambling introduction. And so now without further ado, let me introduce the Basement Dwellers.
Hey, hey, hey. Welcome. How's everyone doing? We're good. Sarah just went to go turn off her AC. Yes. So how does this start out? Do we do some witty banter and then go into an intro? Yeah. I might want to move downstairs quickly so I'm closer to my router. Because okay. I every once in a while will run into an issue where um, I cut out. You sound like a robot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I do sound like a robot a lot, yeah. So I don't want that to happen. Do I sound like a robot right now? No, you sound normal for once. Good. Yeah, now my internet has been fixed in recent times, but I'm still nervous about it. All right, I am set up. All right, so I guess with that, let's let's get started and then we'll just kind of go with the flow and, and see where that flow goes, but yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for joining me and taking some time out of your Saturday to talk about what happens in the mysterious basement of ASU's School <laughs> of Earth and Space Exploration. Um, so I figured let's just start off with some introductions and get to know you guys. So why don't you just talk about your background, uh, what you're doing at ASU, and any other interesting tidbits that you want to share. Yeah, you can go first, Justin. Hello for all these, all those cats and kittens out there. I'm Justin Matthewson. I'm a research specialist in the terahertz lab at ASU. I work for Chris Groppy and Phil Malstop. And I essentially test and build low noise amplifiers pretty much all day. Yeah, Justin's got the best hands in the business. <laughs> People say that. I'm not sure they're still <laughs> oh, that's the catchphrase we all say, you know. It is. Really, it's the only like LNA engineer I know, so <laughs> I might be a bit biased. Yeah, I get the compliments like, wow, your hands are so steady. It's like, are you kidding me? When I look at the microscope, it's like wiggling every which way. <laughs> well, but yeah, it's because those LNAs are small. Like, I would imagine you, you know, you'd have to have absolutely steady hands to, to do that. You know, you wouldn't need them to be as steady as you might think. Well, Justin, you also drink considerably less caffeine than about anyone else in the entire laboratory, which is maybe why we all think you have such steady hands. That everyone else is on a diet of like six to seven cups of coffee a day. I do not drink coffee. I drink it very rarely, like maybe three times a year. Yeah. Wow. How bad does it have to be for, to get you to drink coffee then? Ooh. Like all-nighter or? Uh, no, actually, I can deal with an all-nighter. It's really a matter of if I've gone to sleep and it's only been like two hours and then I wake up and it's like, I can't like function. That's when I need to drink coffee because I've had times where I feel like I don't know where I am. I'm actually falling over like I'm a drunk person and it's just what is happening? <laughs> yeah, there was also that one time Justin and I uh, judged a hackathon, um, the Sun Hacks hackathon for ASU. We were the judges for the uh, hardware portion of it. And uh, I brought like two bang energy drinks that day because they sell them at QT for two for four dollars. I mean, like you can't give up that deal. Um, and I gave Justin one of them in the morning because he, you know, he just wanted a little. He drank like a quarter of the, the bang energy drink and his body was just like vibrating. It was pretty funny to watch. <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, I drink like two of those a day. I... Yeah, uh, caffeine doesn't affect me well. Yeah. <laughs> Give me some of your natural energy because I like don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could. 
Uh, I think it's starting to get to the point where I'm going to start drinking coffee. But I think that's because things have started ramping up on the projects. Before we segue into the projects, John, <laughs> would you, would you should. Oh, right. Yeah. I have to introduce well. myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. My name is Jonathan Ho. I am a. Jeez. Uh, uh, I am in my fifth year of my doctorate. Yeah, my fifth year of my doctorate in astrophysics. Um, I am also doing a concurrent master's in electrical engineering. I got my BS in astrophysics from University of Pennsylvania. I graduated there back in 2016. And uh, yeah, I, I did, uh, when I started at Penn, I wanted to do more like the theoretical side of things. I specifically, like in undergrad, like astrophysics, unlike ASU, was just the physics program. Um, and then you specialized in your last couple semesters. So it was like you do a normal physics track. And then at the end, you could take extra courses in quantum or E&M. And mine were in like cosmology and stuff. And I did the whole track because I really wanted to take GR from a professor uh, there. Uh, what is GR? Professor Corey. Okay. Uh, general oh, relativity. Okay. Sorry. Oh, you're good. I really wanted to take it. Yeah. So that was like, that was always when I was in high school, I like realized I liked physics. Uh, I was I was supposed to go to Wharton. I was like slated to be a business student at Wharton, and then at the last minute, I decided I wanted to do physics because I really thought space was cool. And my whole goal of going to college was I wanted to take general relativity. You know, it's like this beautiful culmination of all of modern physics. You know, Einstein's grand theory and stuff like that. And uh, it was really cool when I finally took it. But by that time, I realized that um, theory uh, sucks. Um, pen and paper work all day and like doing computer simulations all day is not like the lifestyle I really wanted to live. So when I got out of undergrad, I had had experience working um, <clears throat> on BLAST, which I, we might talk about a bit today, which is a balloon mission because I worked with James Aguirre at Penn who works with Chris Groppy and Phil Mouskoff at ASU. And I got some experience working on like cryostats, which are, you know, for people who don't know, are the giant like super refrigerators that we put on telescopes. So you like take this giant refrigerator um, and you cool down your superconducting detectors in there to almost absolute zero, like 300 millikelvins, so 0.3 degrees above absolute zero. And you put them on a balloon and since they're so cold, you can do crazy superconducting electronics with them and get crazy detection levels and sensitivities and stuff. And I got experience with the engineering of that stuff. And I realized that, you know, that was more of the route I wanted to take was the working with my hands, actually building and designing these things. Um, so when I came to grad school, I, you know, I met Chris and stuff, Chris Groppy, and I thought his projects were super neat. He was building all these crazy satellites and instruments and stuff like that. And uh, I realized that I was, I mean, I was completely lacking in, knowledge of electrical engineering and E&M. I think that most people, vast majority of people who aren't electrical engineers, avoid electrical engineering in undergrad um, because it isn't, it looks awful. You know, you see these kids in electrical engineering 102 doing these ball of resistor problems, you know, where they're sitting there solving these like arbitrary circuits and you're just like, this looks awful. Like, why would anyone want to do this? Um, but when I got to you know, when I got to grad school and uh, I feel like Justin 
it, it kind of understands the same thing. You, you, you start to work more in the electrical engineering community and see it, and you realize that like the modern world is just controlled by electrical engineering. Electrical engineering isn't solving for voltages at nodes and circuits. It's designing the world as we know it, these digital architectures and cloud structures and information dispersion, you know, just everything that we use today, our cell phones, our computers. Um, and it's awesome, but it, 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 it is very different than what a lot of people will probably do first in college. So when I got here, I realized that I had to learn all of this stuff. And uh, I started taking some electrical engineering courses, specifically in microwave engineering. And I realized after my third one, I was five classes away from a master's. And I was like, screw it. I might as well go all the way. So I've been taking the rest of the classes for that. I just finished over the summer. So now nice. I have all of my master course work done and I have a couple years left where I will do my kind of finish up my PhD in astrophysics with all these projects that I've done. <clears throat> cool. Okay, so to continue that question, uh, Justin, what drew you more to the space, space industry and to ASU specifically? Oh, that's a long question. So <laughs> not a long question, a long answer. So what drew me to space, I was actually, think around eight years old and you know those like little toys that always like speak at you or something or like they give you like I had a that give you like information um I had a platform thing that just talked about our solar system and gave like relatively great detail of everything and so that just hearing like about the planets really got me interested in like what's out there what can we see what what can we do to travel through it so then that just kind of grew as I grew up, where my parents would just send me to um, coding and robotics camps just to just because I wanted to do it for fun. And they would have us do like the simple build a robot, follow the line using a light sensor or something. And just doing that, I was like, I'm really going to enjoy this. So I kind of and I kind of figured at a young age, I really wanted to work with my hands on like electronics and I wanted to do something with uh, space, whether it be like aerodynamics or microwave electronics. I didn't really know what specifically at the time. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. So what brought me to ASU, well, it, I got my undergrad there and I went to C, I got into CC, which I didn't know was a thing till I got to ASU. Because if I had known, I would have applied for that for my major in the first place rather than being exploratory and searching. And just like learning about the industry as the uh, degree went on through the years, it's like, wow, I really think I found what I wanted to do. And I didn't think it would ever be like an actual major. I thought I'd have to go through the engineering college or some way. And that's just kind of how it happened. Um, there was a point in time where I thought I was going to be a college basketball player or just play or be a coach for some high school at some point in time. Uh, it would have been more of a side job because I think I would have preferred to do the electronics because it would have been more fun. Yeah, for, for people who can't see, Justin is quite tall. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I am 6'2". That's it? Oh, I thought you were taller than that. No. Oh, wow. John, we're about the same size. Yeah, I don't know. I slouch a lot. <laughs> I mean, I slouch too, but that, <laughs> when I stand up straight and put my shoulders in the right place, it's like, oh yeah, you're 16. 
That is a whole foot taller than I am. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so what do you guys intend to do after ASU then? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, <laughs> we don't have to ask it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good question. It's a good question. No. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I'll step in first, but I, I think that we're, we're lucky right now, at least um, in studying space, you know, when I, I always wanted to be an astronaut since I was a kid. And I think back when I was a kid, that was like kind of, if you were interested in space, that was the premier thing you could be, you know, was be an astronaut because that's that as far as you're going to get in space. Um, but throughout my lifetime, the ability to really research um, and, and do things that weren't just academic research, but actual, you know, applicable industry in space have been exploding, especially in the last 10 years, you know, with the you know, creation of SpaceX and Blue Origin and all of these commercial space industries out there, all of these satellite constellations like Swarm and Planet, um, the, the actual industry itself for space has, is growing underneath our feet, you know, almost completely unattached to us. Um, so there are a lot more options in space industry than I thought there would be when I first started studying astrophysics because I was interested in the philosophy of life and stuff like that. You know, personally, I'm not sure if I want to go straight into space industry yet. I would love to start my own company. I have some cool ideas for, for things that I want to believe will happen in the future. You know, some, some pipe dream visions that I have that I would love to get involved in. Um, but for now, I think that when I get out of grad school, um, I want to find a job that is interesting to me. <laughs> and I know that doesn't sound like much, but I feel like during COVID, everyone is having a small existential crisis. Um, I think that I'm realizing that I, I've loved grad school here at ASU, but a large portion of what I've loved so much is going into the lab every day in the basement working with, you know, 20 brilliant scientists every day and kind of just bouncing ideas off of each other for crazy stuff. And the space part of that is awesome. But now that I'm not in that situation anymore and I'm at home working every day, I'm realizing that I've lost a decent amount of the passion I had because I don't have that social interaction anymore. So if I could, I would like to work somewhere where I have interpersonal communication with people and solving big problems. There are a lot of cool labs in Boston, like there's an offshoot of Lincoln Labs that a few of our graduates have worked at that would be cool to work at. Um, but just anywhere where I get to work with smart people and solve problems would be perfect. John, didn't you already start your new company? Yeah, I do. I don't want to plug that just yeah. yet, but we can plug that close <laughs> to the end. I do. I do. I am a CEO of my own corporation. It is an industry disruptor. That's a joke. No one can see my face. That's a joke. It's it's on the horizon. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> Editor to uh, Alpha Core. Yeah, Alpha Core. <laughs> Called it Beta Shell. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, I thought those. I didn't know if those stickers were real. Like the stickers for the company were real in there, or if it was all. Yes, they are. Yeah, I, I do pay a annual fee for my own LLC called Beta Shell LLC. Just explain yeah. the entire, like how it began was the funny part. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through the whole story at some point. Okay. But I want to hear what Justin wants to do because I'm actually curious about this. I guess what I'm curious about is like on a daily basis, you work alongside 
like the PIs for some NASA missions and stuff like that. And you are essentially a pair of hands who knows what you're doing when it comes to building low noise amplifiers. I wouldn't necessarily call myself working alongside the PIs. I think I'm more of the underman of the person who works along the PIs. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, because Hamdi is the one who like, he goes to the meetings and then him or Chris like tell me, go do this. this like, right. So they tell you what needs to get built and you and Hamdi figure out how to build it. Yeah. So what part of that job, like, would you want to continue doing in the future? You know, like the building part, the problem solving part, the space part, the engineering part, you know. The engineering, the space part, and the design part, which I want to get better at, which I've been working on since COVID hit, which uh, has actually been a lot of fun. Just trying to figure out how to use a CAD, like a CAD, like SOLIDWORKS uh, yeah. CAD, although I wish it was like a little more user-friendly. It will be. <laughs> it's still like nice to learn to use, but it's one of those things that if you're not doing it all the time, you kind of just forget yeah. how to do it. And then you just got to relearn again. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I'd prefer to keep doing the space part because space, space is cool. Yeah, space is cool. Um, the engineering part, because I've always wanted to work with my hands, just build and test and just design because like I want to actually create something without it being someone else's creative property. You could do that at a beta show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I plug this to you all the time. Like, Hey man, uh, you ever need someone to come over and create and be like kind of a creative dude, the I'm your guy. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah, it's your first employee. Yeah. Well, we already have employees actually. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah, we, we got really serious about this for like a week and a half a while ago. <laughs> Week and a half. It was like a good month. Yeah, I guess uh, COVID would probably <laughs> COVID probably does that for um, you know not not being able to be in the lab so much. But yeah, I def to, to circle back around to what you were saying, John. I can definitely I would definitely agree with that. I think that was one of the that was that was well a fun part of being in the lab and working on Phoenix because you're just you know, everyone's sitting around a table and we're programming a satellite and we're solving all of these problems. Um, and then, you, you know, you have your witty banter with, with your friends. And it's basically, you're just, you're mm -hmm. working on these really awesome projects for space with your friends. And right. um, it's, it was just the greatest, it was the greatest thing ever. Like I, I just wanted yeah. to do it all day. And I, we, I loved that our lab was next to you guys. Cause we kind of got some of the, um, you know, some of, of your guys' work and witty banter and whatnot kind of bled over yeah. into our lab. And yeah, it was just, it was a fun yeah. space. I really miss, I really miss it down there. Yeah. I feel like when I, you know, you, when you, when you sign up for a PhD program, like you don't really know what to expect, especially in something like astrophysics where like, even though you do an undergrad in it, you don't actually know like what the real world of astrophysics is. You know, you learned how to solve tensor equations, but like what, what the heck do you actually do in the field? And I, when, when I got here, I realized that like, at least for me, and this is not universal for all fields, but at least for the basement crew, like 95% of like what I've learned in grad school so far has come from being in the lab and talking to people. And it's like, you have, you know, and you know this from working on the Phoenix mission, right? Like you have your project that is assigned to you that you work on um, while you're there. 
but a good portion of your time is walking around, talking to people, hearing about what they're doing, getting interested in that, and then kind of hopping on their project for a little, you know, bouncing some ideas off of a whiteboard for their project, learning about what they're doing and learning about something else. And that's really like the vast majority of the learning I've done has been from walking around, talking to people, you know, spending a week or two helping someone out while I do my thing on the side. And uh, it does really suck now that COVID has come that mm-hmm. like now I am, I that 5% that was just me is now the only thing I really have. And it sucks not having these, all these other sources of information coming to me. Um, I miss, I miss just constantly having ADD in the lab, you know, bouncing around between projects, you know, getting into shenanigans, you know, like every Friday, I don't know if I should say this on the podcast, but every Friday we pull off, we would pull off shenanigans and uh, it would be like fun stuff. We had that, we had a giant vacuum chamber in the lab. Sarah, were you there? It was in the Phoenix. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, I'm doing hand there. things. Yeah. So I'm doing hand things, but the podcast people can't hear, but it's probably, you know, five feet across by five feet by five feet. Right. It's a giant metal cube that can get down to like, you know, the pressures of a hundred thousand feet in the air, maybe even higher than that in like 10 minutes. So we would do things where we would put balloons inside there. We would fill them up and watch them expand to the entire size. We put like peeps in there. Marshmallows. We put marshmallow peeps. Yeah, we put all this crazy stuff in there. And we just did so much fun stuff. And you were learning from it, right? Like this was actual learning. And I I was realizing things and understanding concepts. And uh, yeah, that's just such an essential part of grad school. So... Does it feel weird to tell people that you work in a basement or does it actually feel cool? <laughs> um, it's a little both. <laughs> Cause it's fun to joke about when you tell people it's like, yeah, I work in a basement. They hide us from everyone so that we actually get stuff done. <laughs> and then some people will be like, that you work in a basement that's kind of cool because it sounds like you're the mad scientist in a laboratory, just like building away, just being like a Dexter's lab, just get out of my laboratory, DD, and just all that stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like, I do think that when we say we work in a basement, right, like it, there's so much context to that statement, you know, you, you think of us working in a basement, you think of us in, you know, some damp, cold dungeon. Um, But then you come and you see the building, ISDB4, where we work, and it's this absolutely gorgeous building, massive, built in 2012, completely state-of-the-art. And the basement is just, like, outfitted wall-to-wall with just, like, millions of dollars of electronics equipment in our lab. Oh, yeah. So when we say we work in a basement, it's fun because, you know, everyone calls us the basement trolls. And, they're you know, they tell tell us they shove us down there so when we blow things up, it doesn't hurt anyone. but it does feel cool because ISTB4 and, and CC as a department, right, is uh, it, it does have a lot of respect from, from ASU and Michael Crow in particular. You know, this is him and Kip Hodges and a few other people. This was kind of their, their baby brainchild of a project to combine geology and earth science and astrophysics into this exploratory program. And Michael Crow has a lot of pride in it because, I mean, so far in the you know, less than 10 years that the program has been around, they have done really huge things, you know, the the Psyche missions and 
you know, countless NASA missions and missions, international missions with other countries. I can't count how many just in the basement we've done with like other nations versions of NASA. Um, and it does feel cool to be in, you know, a highly regarded department at such a large university and be like the crazy scientists in the basement part of it, you know, like everyone above us is doing awesome projects, you know, the geologists work on such cool stuff. Um, but it's fun to know that everyone upstairs thinks we're the lunatics in the basement, you know, blowing things up and setting things on fire. No one's supposed to know about the fire, John. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> we haven't lit anything on fire. It, it was really cool to say that like you worked in the basement because we were telling people about Phoenix. It was like, oh yeah, now we're building a satellite. You know, it's just, we, yeah, we, we build in the basement, you know, no, no big deal. <laughs> like it's normal. Um, and then people just always yeah. kind of looked at me like, okay. Um, yeah. I mean, you had, you had it real. You had, a, you had one of the best undergrad setups I've ever seen, Sarah. Like, I don't know. I felt like coming from Penn, to hear it was like I look back at undergrad and it was like well, why did I go like you know I spent so much money on this undergrad education and like I got to work on some cool projects obviously but then I come here and I see you guys working on the Phoenix Cubes and it's literally a group of undergrads in charge of a mission to send a CubeSat into space to do thermal readings on the city to watch the heat island or the urban heat effect and like, it's all run by you guys. Like you have some oversight, but it, Sarah, you essentially were the PI of this mission, you know, <laughs> like, and you got to do everything. You guys got to do the hardware, the software, you got to do, you got to build everything yourselves. You had access to all of this equipment and you got to learn all of these insane skills essentially on your own and with a significant budget. And I, I'm jealous that you got to do that. That's oh, yeah. a really cool undergrad project oh. you got to do. Yeah. It's it's really unfortunate that, you know, it, it's not like we're, we're going to be able to do exactly this again sometime soon. I mean, we're working towards it, but um, I definitely think we got, we did get very lucky. <laughs> um, and it's definitely a stepping stone to things in the future, because I know they're they're really working on that with uh, ASU's Interplanetary Initiative. Yeah, like, uh, it is it is an extremely unique opportunity, not just at ASU, at any institution, you know, it does not matter how prestigious the institution is. Like, it's incredible, I think, just like the opportunities that you will have in the future because of that project. And I think that's what makes the most, most of us the most jealous, right? It's like, it was awesome they got the opportunity, but like, leaving undergrad, you actually did a four plus one, right? So no, I'm doing a, a traditional master's. Oh, you're doing a traditional mm -hmm. master's. So you, you're in that right now? Yeah, I didn't, yeah. I don't know, I wanted to do it, but I don't think it, you lose so much from a graduate experience if you just yeah. accelerate the whole process. And so I agree. I'm really glad that I opted out of that. But I mean, but regardless, like even if you hadn't done the master's, right? Like let's say you had dipped out right after undergrad, you would have been able to go into the workforce with just an undergrad degree, but also be able to say that you were the head of a small NASA mission essentially. And you led all these different parts of this project. You did the systems engineering for all uh oh. It looks like his internet is acting up. Oh no. <laughs> Just wait patiently. As long as the whole Zoom meeting doesn't crash, I. All these things. And there are so few people. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, John. Yeah. Welcome back. You're, you're good. Am I back? Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, All your right. Sorry, but I knew this was going to happen. Yeah. Anyways, I guess I was just saying no, that. Okay. But I had uh, one where yeah. like the whole Zoom meeting just crashed because my Wi-Fi cut out for a minute and I thought I lost oh, wow. like 
an hour and a half's worth of content. It was, I, I wanted to cry. <laughs> I did not, I did not, but uh, it was very scary. Well, I'll just talk less then, so there's less chance to get cut off. <laughs> that is like the worst thing you could possibly have happen, no matter what you're doing. Like whether or not you're testing or building and you're just taking data and then immediately like something crashes on you and you're just like, you lost everything and you just go, you lose your mind. Because I've had that yeah. uh, maybe once or twice. Um, one time was when uh, the lab flooded. Oh yeah, oh. the lab flood. That's a great war story <laughs> oh right God. there. Yeah, we'll save that for later. Yeah. Yeah, we'll say that's a good one. That's part two of the episode. We'll get into the floor. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, anyways, yeah, I actually am curious, though. Sarah, you asked this question earlier about what we want to do after grad school. Um, uh, I am curious about what you want to do after your master's because you have a particularly impressive resume behind you, and I'm curious of what you were looking into doing. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. <laughs> um, definitely, definitely going into the industry. Um, but I, I think it, in terms of where into space in the first place was because I really liked the exploration and the science side of it. Um, even though I'm, I, you know, my background's in engineering. Uh, so I, something that is like backed with science uh, is meaningful to me. Um, so places, you know, like places like NASA or Ball, I admire what they do, um, is kind of what I've been looking at. And so I've been kind of trying to apply to all of those different places, but I don't, I'm not really married to working on like one specific thing that is meaningful to me and is meaningful to an exploration for you know, humanity, because um, that, that's the whole reason why I, I just fell in love with space in the first place. So yeah. there's, there's several things I can do in several places I think I could work where I would be perfectly happy. Um, but, you know, one thing that I think this conversation has really made me realize is, or at least remember, is in terms of the experience, what I'm doing, I, I do love that lab experience of being with people yeah. and and talking to them and, uh, you know, bouncing ideas off and testing things and, you know, thinking, oh, no, it broke. Oh, okay, we fixed it. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. not the last part so much because that's not great. But, um, yeah, that experience, it's just the best. It, it was the whole, it was the best part of Phoenix um, was, yeah. was integration and test and just working with everybody. Um, and, and you learn a lot from it. You learn a lot in terms of uh, how to make your design better. Um, mm -hmm in terms of communication and, you know, trying to fix things quickly and also how do I fix things quickly, but, you know, not so much to where everyone's stressed out and you end up breaking something again. So it's like this balance of technical challenges and, and schedule. And I, I think that's, you know, that gets really interesting. Uh, you know, it's something that you don't realize is that like when you, when you work with a good group of people, it's almost like you're in a band, right? Where the sum of all, like the, the band itself is greater than the sum of all of the parts, right? Like the lab itself, you know, the whiteboard that you can create going over an idea. If you have, you know, a lab of six people, if everyone individually went up to the whiteboard and wrote their ideas out, um, compare that whiteboard to the whiteboard you would create with all six of you sitting there and writing it together. There's no comparison. You know, like when you are with people who are, you know, synergizing and blending together, 
the ideas you can come with up with are are so much greater than you know anything anyone could create on their own, and it really is an incredible experience. So anything, anytime you work for the government, right? It's an interesting experience. There's a lot of extra bureaucracy involved, and it's like this balance between like when you work in industry, right? It's it's high pressure, um, high risk, high reward. Um, and then when you work with government, it's extremely methodical, right? To the point of of redundancy and and just you know, almost annoyance. You know, it's, it's a balance of finding kind of the uh, work environment that fits for you. Do you like more of the methodical stuff? Do you like more of the crazy chaos of the high risk, high reward, you know? But I feel like the issue, and this is something that I'm facing, and I think that we all are facing, is that sometimes you can lose perspective of why you're really in the field in the first place when you get into the job market, mm. you know? It's like, I feel like a lot of us, and, you know, personally, I think I got into space originally because, you know, I was young, you know, I was 17 or 18 and I was just overwhelmed with, you know, the problems in the world and stuff. And everyone kind of reacts in a different way. And like, you know, to me, it was like studying space and the universe and our existence would give us some perspective. And, you know, like the understanding that, you know, we as a people are, you know, just a tiny part in this universe would create world peace and all this hippie stuff that I believed at the time that drove my passion and you, and you forget these things. Right. And like you with, you know, you love the discovery aspect of it and solving these discovery problems. It's very easy to lose sight of that passion when it becomes your job. Like they tell you when you're young, that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And while that's somewhat true, I guess it's like, that's not a great way of looking at it because doing your passions will drain you like anything else. Um, and if you if you turn all of your hobbies into work, you do lose a lot of the enjoyment of it. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's this kind of quarter life crisis that a lot of people hit when they are academics, where they where they're realizing that they're losing some of the original passion that they had. Um, and I think that's what drives me and other people I've worked with to think, oh, maybe I'll just skip out for a few years, go make you know a couple million dollars on Wall Street, and then and then I'll go back and help the world, you know. And right, if you go do a PhD, that's like five or six more years of, of academia. And it does get mm. long. That's fair. That is, that's actually, well, that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to do a PhD. But I've also, I haven't really found that like niche of engineering that would make me want to stay for a PhD. Yeah. One of these days, you know, if you get a master's, there's all, you know, you've opened the door that if you ever want to come back and do the PhD, you have the option. That's fair. On that note. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to bump you, but no, I feel no, like I'm a bad and no one else. No, this is fun. No one else wants this to. This is fun. This is good. Um, that's the conversation. That's what we call the flow, John. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say we're gonna go we were gonna go with it. Okay. But to to kinda just kind of segue off of this. So we've we've been we've been talking a lot about our our background, projects you guys are working on in the lab, which are are really cool in my opinion. Like share some of your experience of just some of the uh, projects that you've gotten to work work on throughout your time at ASU, and then we'll kind of yeah. dive into specific questions with those throughout the interview. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Justin. Um, yeah, you can go. Just what what projects have you worked on, Justin? Or any any that you want to share? Yeah. You can just share, Justin and, and uh, Gustin. Okay. Gustin, <laughs> Gustin, Gustin. Gustin. <laughs> and Simon's Observatory, if you want to. The projects that I've been fully on are Simon's Observatory and Gusto. 
which, uh, forgive me, I don't know the acronym for it very well, so I have to... Oh, come on. No one knows the acronyms. Because uh, I, I had really had to look up the acronym because I forgot. Uh, GUSTO, which stands for Galactic Extragalactic, ULDB, which is... Oh, my God, I forgot. Ultra Long Duration Yeah, Ultra Long Duration Balloon. Uh, spectroscopic Terahertz Observatory. <laughs> that is a wordful. Those are the two ones I fully own. Other than that, there was Toltec. Pretty much for that project, I made them stainless steel cables so that they could do readout and whatnot. And uh, amplifiers for that readout chain. Before you continue, what are all of these projects? What do they do? Toltec is a, it's a cryo-cooled telescope that's still in production, still being made. Because they were already like, halfway through it when I finally joined the team at ASU. So I tried to learn as much as I could and all I knew was that it was a cryo-cooled telescope on the ground in Mexico in, I think, the highest peak in Mexico. It's about traveling up to that mountain. <laughs> uh, I don't think I want to go there anytime soon. But I have heard about the food and the food sounds great. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I know a little more about science, but I'm, I'm not at that point yet. Uh, but I guess that is a good segue. Uh, Simons is also another ground-based telescope that is in the Atacama Desert in northern Chile. 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 Now, I, I don't necessarily know what their objective is. I think John would know that better than I would. Of, of Simon's? Yeah, the, their science objective, I don't really know it. Uh, for our portion, I, I, I know about the instrumentation that we're using for it, but I was only on the project for like a month. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could just talk about the instrumentation. We don't have to talk about the... Yeah. Um, my part was dealing with building and designing an amplifier that had to be 48 gigahertz and have about... 15, 20 dB over about a 12 gigahertz span. And what we came up with was a, it's a chip, it's a mimic chip based amplifier that um, uses this, almost the same components as our normal ones, except um, there it's all wire bonding. Wire bonding is incredibly difficult. For yes. people who have never done it before, it's uh, you have to use like a very specialized piece of equipment with microscopes and and do very very fine precision you know essentially wire placing onto pads. We're talking about wire that's probably about as thin as John's hair. Maybe? Yeah, a piece of hair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that thin. But we can go smaller. I think 0.7 mil is the smallest wire we have. Yeah, very small. And very, very easy to break. <laughs> yes, it's the most annoying thing to work with. You have to use a specific, we have so many needles that we've broken, you have to use a specific one for it. And if you overpower some of these needles, they break. And these needles are not cheap. They're like, I don't know, upwards $200, $400 each. Yeah, and, and the, the wire bonders, I mean, they're, they're extremely expensive on their own. You know, any, they can be up to $100,000 if you want like a CNC one or something. 
And we have essentially one good one in our lab. We have one bad one that died during the flood, which we will talk about at the end. Yes. But we have a number of projects which use these wire bonders, um, and they are essential to building the circuitry and electronics. And if you, if you mess something up and you break a needle, um, you have thrown off everyone else's projects, you know, probably for that week. So it's pretty high pressure to be very, very precise while you're using the machine. What, what, was the, what are the benefits of using wire bonding as opposed to something else? What else? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Like your hands? I think she means solder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It does help with heat reduction. You don't have to worry about too much mm-hmm. heat being transferred inside of the package or whatever your amplifier is connected to. Yeah, so you don't have to, you don't have to press a soldering iron against mm-hmm. your electronics. And you could, you could have something that's really sensitive to heat, like the Mimic chip for this, uh, this amplifier, which you, hold, you have the heat on too high or if it's on there too long, the chip starts to like kind of, just like kind of bubbles up and the gold surface that you would bond to just like kind of crumples and becomes gray. And then the whole chip just doesn't work. And like one of these chips, they are also not cheap. Just to get 50 of them, I think it cost us about maybe a thousand or two grand per packet. So just to get 50, or I might have that number wrong. I just know that uh, just to order one pack was a lot and we're not going to order anymore for a while. Uh, there's also, I mean, like the heat is a big issue, especially for the stuff that you're doing. Right? But I feel like the precision of it is like one of the big selling points, right? Like oh, yeah. the way it works is it's like, it's mechanic. I'm using my hands again on a podcast, <laughs> but like you pull levers almost like you're controlling like a, like a big, those like diggers, mm-hmm. you know, the ones uh, at construction sites, it's oh, not yeah. the same, but like you use, you use a set of like knobs and, and levers to very, very precisely place where you're going to be placing this wire down. Mm-hmm. And when you put it down, it has an incredibly small footprint too. So when you solder, you know, you have a blob of lead solder that you, you heat up and you shove your wire in and it essentially electrically connects your wire to the actual board itself, but it leaves the blob of solder on there. And unless you are very, very precise in cutting off anything you don't need, there's a footprint from that solder blob. And on wire bond, you do not leave that same, that same footprint. So you can get very, very closely like lined up wires, all, you know, bonded to a surface in a row without any footprint. All of them are electrically isolated from one another. So you can, you can miniaturize, you know, very complex circuits into a very small size because you have this precision and, and cleanliness to it. Mm-hmm. And the lack of heat, which on a small electronics board is very so heated. Actually, wirebonding uses an ultrasonic tool to kind of just vibrate and kind of cut the wire when you're bonding it down. So it uses, you can like, uh, you can control the force of how, how it's pressed onto that pad. You can change the heat and the ultrasonic and the ultrasonic power that just like kind of cuts it and makes sure that it bonds onto the pad too. You know, so I can't think of it right now. But it's, it's a pain in the butt at the end okay. of the day. It yeah. is a pain in the butt to do. And you need, you need someone who knows what they're doing to train you how to do it. And Justin is one of the few people in the lab we trust with the you know, like the NASA level machinery to actually do it, you know, Justin and Hamdi are really the only two. And um, 
when we had the old one before it got lost in the flood, we would spend, we could spend upwards of like five minutes to four hours trying to get one bond down. Yeah. And then it, it, it's, so the old, the old wire bonder started breaking and we realized it was the ultrasonic cutter. I don't know if that's what you call it, but the ultrasonic tool part of it. And Hamdi, we keep mentioning him, but people don't know, Hamdi is our, uh, our engineering wizard in our lab. Um, he's, he's from Tunisia. He really is a wizard. He's yeah, a wizard. he's literally a wizard. He cold called a very famous professor at Caltech to ask him a question about low noise amplifiers when he was like 18 or something. Um, this professor, Sandy, at, at, um, Sandy Weinrep at Caltech, just essentially brought Hamdi to the United States to work for him. And then my advisor, Chris Grappi, met Hamdi, saw how much potential he had, and was like, hey, if you come to ASU, we'll give you a bachelor's for free. So we got Hamdi, and he is easily one of the best engineer, electrical engineers I've ever met in my life. He is world-class, world-renowned, and is just incredible at designing these LNAs. You know, he is the brain behind the designs yeah. for these things. He um, also, um, this is a story Hamdi has told me, that he also, like, had taken, he basically, oh, yeah, a little background about Sandy Weinrup is that he's, like, one of the foremost LNA designer builder people out there. And that Hamdi, as he was under Sandy's wing, he took Sandy's uh, design and like improved it a lot, and which is where like where Hamdi gets his prowess from too. Yeah, just the genius that he is that he'll never admit. I guess to maybe taking a step back, like about the Simons Observatory project itself. And like why, why we keep talking about LNAs, right? Like we keep mentioning low noise amplifiers. And I, I feel like when I, I was first outside of the community, when I first got here, you know, we heard people talk about LNAs so much and we saw people working on them that much. And I just kind of assumed it was just part of like any, you know, it was just the same thing as a capacitor or a resistor. I didn't really get the importance of an LNA and why Hamby was so renowned for it. Um, but like they are, they are such an essential part of most space missions because you know when when you think about looking out into space, right? What we are looking for is we are looking for very faint signals from either stars or galaxies or any other structures that release photons. You know that's that's the communication of space. We're trying to listen to space in the electromagnetic spectrum, looking for photons, and these photons that come in are extremely weak because you know they're from hundreds, thousands, millions of light years away, right? It's a long distance for a little photon to travel all the way to Earth, go through our atmosphere or whatever else it has to go through, dust and stuff, and us to pick it up. So when we do pick up these extremely faint photons, um, we need to differentiate them from noise, you know, just general gobbledygook that we are getting. And that's where the low noise amplifier comes in. And it is a low noise amplifier because what it does is it takes that photon, that signal or that, you know, that waveform that we are getting, we are listening from the stars and it pumps it up to a point where it is something that is readable with human electronics. But the issue is that when you pump something up, there's all that gabbledygook in there too, that also gets pumped up. And the point of the low noise amplifier is it essentially pumps up the signal that we want without creating too much noise so that we lose the signal in, in all the other stuff that is involved in an electronic signal. And it is so important to the field of astronomy in general because everything that we use has to be amplified because everything is so faint in space. 
So in, in the case of Simons, and now I'm remembering now, Simons is, I think it studies the CMB mostly, yeah. uh, which is the cosmic microwave background, which is the kind of, uh, it's, it's the echo of the Big Bang, I think yeah. is the way to call it. You know, it's uh, in a period called the last scattering. You know, the last time, like, the universe was small enough that electrons and photons, or uh, electrons and photons were all in one area. There was one last period where the electrons all bounced off into space and they separated from the photons. And there is this very, very beautiful and unique pattern that a lot of people have seen before called the cosmic wave background. Um, and Simons studies this. And I mean, this is, this used to be when you were talked about cosmology, almost all of it was the CMB because up until, you know, 20 years ago, that was really the, the most important thing we could study. And we have studied the heck out of it since then. So it's a little on the wayside now. But people, I mean, still are very interested in it for obvious reasons. But Simons um, is working with ASU on this project to create these harnesses. And Justin and Handy's LNAs are, you know, the low noise amplifiers, which are used for this harness. And I call it a harness because uh, that's just what we call it. But it's essentially these massive cubes. And inside them, we have a huge layer of um, detectors that we, we call transition edge sensor sense transition edge sensors and uh i won't get into the physics of how tes works because i don't really think that's no one wants to hear that but these are superconducting electronics um, which means that we have to essentially get these down as I said before to almost absolute zero for them to function correctly and uh the light comes in and it hits these tes sensors or these edge sensors and we have you know massive arrays of them and each edge sensor has its own line, which when light hits it, gives out a signal. And this line goes down to the readout system. And we've said the word readout a lot. And when we say, you know, when we talk about readout in astronomy, readout is essentially the process of turning something from the physical world into the digital world is the way I like to see it. You know, you have these things that are happening in real space. You have these fluctuations in the electromagnetic field coming from a star, these photons, they hit some detector object and this detector object reacts to these fields. And we take that reaction and convert it into data, which we put on a computer. And that's how we get these pretty pictures of space. So each of these lines comes down from this superconducting detector, which has a very small signal in it. And it goes through Justin and Hamdi's amplifiers, which amplify them to a point which can be read by a computer. And Simons is using a ton of these um, to do this large-scale mapping. Um, and that's why Justin and Hamby's LNAs are so essential to the project. They have to be very good. The project's using two specific uh, design yes. ones come up with. I just did okay. the board's LNA, which is the one that I built, uh, like 50 of them, for, I think, a span of three harnesses that they've done so far. And then there's the four Kelvin LNA, which... Hamdi is currently testing, uh, I would say as we speak, he is very particular. He will not share anything with anyone until it's like he gives his seal of approval. Like, this is the best thing that you're going to get and you got to buy it now. Mm -hmm. And no one will see it until like piece of art, like it's a piece of another testament to Hamdi's prowess. He makes it so good that people just keep buying that we they have two stages of amplifiers because you know we we have 
it's it's weird to think about, but these photons are cold when they get a lot of orders, right? We are in these these cold optics regimes, and we have to drag this information into a much warmer environment, right? So we're going from nearly absolute zero to the temperature of your house. And through this process, the information in, inside these lines is, is getting all garbled up because as it gets warmer, you know, the, the idea of thermal energy itself and heat is this extra movement in energy. And you are, you, you are just noiseifying. That's not the word, but you're, you're adding in noise the warmer these things get. So it's a very, very methodical process of getting the signal in and having stages. The actual blocks themselves have multiple stages which are thermally separated. You know, the top is at 4 Kelvin. The middle's at 40 Kelvin and, you know, you, you go to 300 Kelvin from there. So there are these stages where we have to go from 4K and then slowly and, and you know, very precisely amplify the signal, move to 40K, amplify the signal, move it to room temperature and stuff like that. So it's a heck of a process. And this is, this is used on a lot of other projects as well that we can talk about. Gotcha. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, Gusto has a similar process, doesn't it? Uh, Gusto, I've, I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's not the same project, uh, same process. Um, it is similar to a balloon project that has flown twice, uh, called STO and STO2. I've, I've been there for the very, very first meeting. That that just mostly of what I've worked on, and I know that there they have five amplifier uh, five amplifier blocks that have eight channels each that are just reading out, looking into the CMB and reading uh, exactly what John has mentioned before. Yeah, I think also Gusto is, um, it's doing stuff, I, I do not work on Gusto at all, so I can't talk about it much at all. Um, but I do think it's talk, it studies like interstellar medium as well. Yes. And yes, like that right. life cycle of the star picture and mm -hmm. how it, it's, so it's, it's studying a lot how planets and stars form in these like stellar nursery areas of these molecular clouds of H2 gas, which is molecular hydrogen. Exactly, no. Essentially studying like basically the birth of a solar system, essentially. Yeah, the, the birth of stars. Yeah, and I feel like that's, you know, we really haven't talked at all. You know, we, we are technically a terahertz lab. Right, and that's a that's a that's a deep rabbit hole to get into. To really go over all of that, but terahertz is 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 a frequency of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's a regime. So for anyone who is unaware, right, like all of the electromagnetic spectrum you heard, you know of radio waves, microwaves, infrared, visible light, gamma, X rays, all of that is the same thing. It's just photons, right? It's photons vibrating at higher frequencies and higher energies and lower energies and lower frequencies. So just below visible light, we have infrared. And when I say below, I mean below an energy. We have infrared. And below infrared is microwave. And right in between microwave and infrared is this area called terahertz. And the issue with terahertz is that when you are in the, the higher energy regimes like infrared and visible light, you can use optics to essentially lasso and control your light so you know when we want to look at visible light in space we have that classic picture of the telescope with the optical you know the, the lens the light comes through and focuses down 
Um, and when we are in the very low energy, which is long wavelength regimes like radio waves, we have lumped circuitry, so your standard circuit board. And that's because the wavelengths are so long that they don't change their, their energies at all on the scale of something as small as a resistor. But then when you get into the area or the regime where the wavelength of your light is at the same scale as the electronics you're using, you get very bizarre effects. And that is the terahertz regime. And it just so happens that also in the terahertz regime are very, very important stellar markers, such as water vapor and the CO line, which is carbon oxygen. Um, so when, when stars are birthing in these you know, stellar nurseries, these areas that Justin and Gusto are looking at, um, they give off very, very bright signals in the terahertz. And that's why we have to study this extremely difficult portion of, of engineering because to be able to see these signatures, you need to overcome these massive hurdles of, of dealing with the freaky, bizarre, and almost unlike predictable physics of this regime. Mention it. Gusto is a NASA funded project. So all our work that we have been doing for this project has been in a clean room that has been NASA approved. Uh, just to kind of oversimplify anything that John has said about Gusto. The Gusto project is to provide a complete spectroscopic study of all phases of star life from the formation of molecular clouds through star birth and evolution and the formation of interstellar gas clouds and the reinitiation of the cycle. So as John said, like just the terahertz lines, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, of that electromagnetic spectrum and it's set to fly because I know dates are important. Uh, next December in a McMurdo Antarctica. Exactly what you want to know, unless you want to know like the process that I've been going through for Gusto and doing the instruments for it, or if you want to know more like. We could also we could also pivot a little into blast here because this is pretty close to blast yeah, sure. and the other projects that we all work on. I mean, I don't, yeah, neither Justin and I are, are essential parts of BLAST and BLAST, okay, well, let, let's first say BLAST is similar to Gusto because BLAST is also a balloon mission, right? And these balloon missions are done by launching a, essentially a massive weather balloon into the, into the atmosphere at the South Pole. And we do it at the South Pole because of something called the polar vortex, which is this pattern of air circulation where if you launch a balloon into it, it can stay up in the air for an incredibly long amount of time, you know, on the scale of a month if it's done very well. Um, and attached to these balloons, hanging underneath them are these gondolas. And on these gondolas, we put our telescopes. And telescopes in this case aren't these disc, these like lens things. They're actually these very, very complex detectors, these superconducting ones. And because they're superconducting, we actually have to attach a cryostat on that balloon as well. So this balloon flies up in the air carrying a telescope and a essentially a super refrigerator. And, uh, and, and we, we, we fly these around and we get tons of data. And this is essentially a way of doing a space mission for a fraction of the price. So space mission, if you want to actually go into space and have a satellite in space looking out, costs you on the order of $100 million, let's say, or more, $500 million if it's class A. A balloon mission costs more like $10 million. And you can get very good and you can get very good data out of it for for a tenth the price we'll say like 10 to 40 million yeah 10 to 40 million 
Um, so we, as Justin said, they have done STO and STO2 as well, which they have flown. But very recently, the most recent balloon flight that was done was something called Blast the Next Generation, TNG. And uh, this was based off of the original mission, BLAST, which was also a South Pole balloon mission. And there's actually a documentary about this. Oh, no way. That's cool. Yeah. The PI, um, Mark Devlin, who was actually at Penn when I was there, um, he was on the Colbert Report uh, for this documentary, which was really cool. So, you know, if you ever meet, if you ever meet him, you can be like, hey, I saw you on the Colbert Report. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was somewhat famous mission that was done um and it was mapping the uh it was mapping the dust fields around uh, distant galaxies so galaxies themselves produce electromagnetic fields which you can actually track by looking at dust particles and dust particles in space aren't tiny little dots they're actually like uh, you can think of them as like little grains of rice maybe and they will actually orient depending on the magnetic field around them because they have a slight amount of electrical charge to them. So when they orient, when light passes through them, so you have, let's say, a star inside a galaxy, and around that galaxy is a bunch of dust, and that star is emanating light, and the light that is coming towards Earth passes through that dust. And depending on the direction that the dust is in because of the magnetic field, you will actually see different polarizations of the light. So by looking at how light is polarized from these stars, we can see which direction the dust is in and therefore make an inference as to the magnetic fields around these stars and these galaxies, I should say. And these magnetic fields are essential to understanding so many parts of the birth of stellar structures and stuff like that. So that was the original intent of, of uh, BLAST. And they recently just relaunched it what, what, when was the last blast? Oh, last December. Yeah, last December they launched it again. And this time they used a new detector technology. Before they used the TESs, the ones that they use for Simons, the transition set edge sensors. And this time around they used what were called MKIDs, which are microwave kinetic inductance detectors. I could give, you know, we, we've given this lecture a thousand times. I won't do it here, but they are a very, very cool technology, very good at detecting light. Um, so they recently flew that one as well, um, and uh, it failed. Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, there was a, an issue where a collar fell off of the balloon, and they, they launched it, and it looked like a successful launch. They have video of everyone celebrating, and if you look at the video, you just see this, like, white thing fall oh, off the no. top of the balloon. And it just oh, bounces man. into this, like, you know, $20 million mission gondola and just, like, broke through like one of like the platings and stuff like that. And it just messed up so much stuff that the balloon eventually just started to fall elevation super fast. And within a couple days it was on the ground and not only did it land on the ground, there was because of the way it landed, there was a pressure buildup and then it exploded. So this mission, (laughs) this mission was supposed to fly for a month, ended up flying for like a day and a half, fell out of the sky and exploded in the middle of the South Pole. Yeah. Now, to be uh, fair, I think they did get like some... They did get some data. Yeah, yeah. Some, several hours of data, which is great. And they're planning yeah, it to do was, it again, though, aren't they? To yes. Well, no, I think... I don't think... I don't know if... Yeah, I don't know if Mark Devlin can handle that again. Mm-hmm. He has been through a lot of hurdles. I mean, yeah. space missions suck, you know? It's like humans are not meant to be up there. You know, humans are not meant to be in the atmosphere. We are, we are doing absurd things that take so many things going right to work. 
Um, but when they do, it's, it's magical, but it's so stressful. And Mark has been doing this for a very long time. And I think that he is starting to want to move on to the next thing now that they've been doing Blast for almost a decade. Um, but as a, as a science mission, it, yeah, it was a failure. Um, but as an engineering uh, mission, at, this is the first time that we've ever flown these M-Kids and gotten pictures of them. It was actually quite a success. Oh, yeah. So in a lot of ways for our lab, we weren't too disappointed with the results. But the people who were waiting for the data about the you know, <laughs> magnetic fields around the galaxies, they were a little disappointed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, you know, blast was blast. Uh, but we, 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 we do base a lot of our missions off of that now. Mm -hmm. So I guess to kind of back up a little bit, like you, you mentioned that, you know, doing things in space is just incredibly hard. Um, so, you know, some people might think, well, you know, why do you actually have to use a high altitude balloon mission in order to study that kind of, that kind of thing? Ah. And there was a, a graphic that I saw and it was comparing, you know, just the, the difference of what you could see with a telescope yeah, on the, the ground yeah. versus, uh, versus uh, a plane like the Sophia telescope versus mm -hmm. um, high altitude balloon and then versus a satellite. And just because of the ozone, it's yeah. looking at things from the ground is so different. Um, right. Especially, especially in, in terahertz, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, this is with terahertz astronomy, this is the single biggest issue is that water, the, there's a very, very powerful rotational line that comes off of water. When I say that, I mean the way the water molecule rotates gives off a spectral signature. It, it wobbles the electromagnetic field around it. And it does this in the terahertz regime. Um, around like 556 gigahertz or 1.2 terahertz, right? And um, if you look at, if you look through a terahertz camera, right? And you put your hand up, you will not be able to see it in front of your face. You cannot see your hand in front of your face in the terahertz on the ground because there's so much water vapor mm. in our atmosphere. So if you want to look at anything in the terahertz, you have to get above the water in the atmosphere. And to do that, you got to get up like 100,000 feet. Mm. You know, and that's just the way science works sometimes. Because if you want the data, you gotta you gotta put in the work and, and take the risk. Is and it a, sucks. Is this your transition into uh, Tim or is it Astros? Uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, I know much more about Tim than Ast Astros, but this would be the same. I mean, Tim. So I'm working on a new mission now. I, I feel like I've been talking for a while, so I, I want to stop soon. I don't want to take too much. I want to. No, no, we. Uh, I told her ahead of time, like, just expect this because I, I'm only as good at everything else as I can possibly be. Because mostly what I do is just build and test. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've been because um, I, I, I came late on a lot of them. So anyways, Tim is the newest mission. Uh, no, I shouldn't say the newest. We've gotten more. But it's, it's my mission that I've been working on recently. And it stands for the Terahertz Intensity Mapper. And the name is Tim. Um, it used to be called Starfire, which is a super cool name. It was great. Yeah, that's a cool yeah, name. Yeah, apparently there's a DC superhero named Starfire. <laughs> and when you Google images of Starfires, people were like, oh, it's a scantily clad teenager. We can't use it. Okay, scantily oh. clad. Oh, oh my God. Uh, yeah. That ruined it? You've got to uh, be kidding me. Sarah, I'm telling you, you said you, this is NASA bureaucracy. <sighs> you know, like, I, I love them for awesome. what they've done. I it's know. Great. I love Starfire. She okay, hold up. I think that would have been more of a uh, 
a, a legal battle than it is like a beer. No, I don't think it was. You know, I was there for the first. I was there when we made the name Tim. I voted on this. Thing, <laughs> well, yeah, you know? see, that's the story you should be telling, like how it became Tim. Yeah, I think you well, came okay, up with so, that. Yeah, we, 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 yeah, we, we decided it couldn't be Starfire. We were at the first meeting. We had just spent like nine or ten hours going over that every single portion of this mission, who is going to be taking over what with all of these university heads from all over the world. And we go out for drinks later and we, we were sitting there drinking beers and we were like, we need to pick a name. We haven't done one yet. So we like tried to come up with some names. Um, and I had the whole day been writing out like dumb names that I could think of of acronyms that work. I had hilarious, you know, I thought they were funny because I have an awful sense of humor. I had ones that were called like <laughs> big dog and like just stupid things like that. And like, they didn't get it. You know, I was just some like, you know, I was just a young grad student and everyone hated me because that's what you do with grad students. So no one wanted to hear it. So <laughs> we, they give out the list of names and they're all awful. Um, and like halfway through, I just saw Tim and I was like, we had to choose three. And I was like, well, Tim, no one's ever going to pick that name. So I checked it off and everyone else had the same idea. So the PI of the mission was counting it up and he was like, well, the official name of this NASA mission is Tim. And that was it. And we have to live with it now. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it works because we're mapping the terahertz intensity. We're trying to, so we're doing, it's the same thing as BLAST essentially. Um, we're using almost all of the same technology as BLAST, except we're using a spectrometer, um, a, a grading spectrometer for the light. So when the light comes in, instead of us just you know measuring how much light is hitting, we're actually going to send it through a spectrometer and spread out the light through its spectrum, which means we'll know, we'll essentially know how much of different frequencies of light are coming in, which allows us to do a spectral map. And from this, we can get some like really cool 3D, you know, like volumetric mapping of galaxies and stuff like that. And it should be pretty cool. Uh, but it, it, but it's essentially the same thing as BLAST and we're gonna be launching it up in the same type of gondola as BLAST and uh, hoping that it doesn't break this time. Hopefully. Um, yeah, and uh, the only the other difference, right? And this is the, the the part of the project that I'm working on is the is the readout, which I said is the kind of the change from the physical world to the digital world. And uh, this is the nitty. This is easily the the like grimiest part of like space missions that I've worked on. I never wanted to do readout, but you know, yeah, you always end up working on the projects that you never want to work on. Um, but this is done through what are called. Uh, FPGAs or field programmable gate arrays. And uh, it's like, if you think of like a CPU in your computer, your CPU can either add, subtract, or multiply. And it just loops through these functions over and over to do your systems. An FPGA is almost a more fundamental version of that, where it's just a, think of like a massive grid of, of logic, right? It's just a bunch of NAND gates. And you orient these things so that you can do incredibly high speed, high bandwidth processing of information. So where a CPU, where if you wanted to do an action a thousand times on a CPU, it would just set up a loop where it would do it a thousand times. On an FPGA, you set up the logic so that you put the step a thousand times in a row and it just shoots the information through and goes in a row and does it a thousand times through the board. And these things are incredibly difficult to program. They are, they are super, super basic, you know, fundamental information theory and data theory, and um, it is brutal to work on. And we have used the same FPGA for 10 years called the Roach. 
and it's as disgusting as it sounds. And we have some people in our lab, specifically like Adrian Sinclair in the undergrad, Ryan Stevenson, who are, who, you know, who are very good at this. And Adrian in particular is, is world-class at this stuff. He'd say he wasn't, but, um, but we recently, this new FPGA has come out called the <clears throat> RF sock by Xilinx. And it is just like, it is, you know, the next coming of the Messiah when it comes to this stuff. It is able to process, you know, like eight times the, the information speed. You know, it, it can do it all with, a, you know, an eighth of the volume, an eighth of the power consumption, but it is completely untested technology. So our lab has, and, and I've been working with this, has been, has been bashing our head into this incredibly complex logic core, trying to form it into something that can read out what, this balloon mission and on this balloon mission we're looking at a thousand to two thousand detectors which you know we have to be able to read out each of them you know like a few hundred times per second and get the information out of them in a way that can be then transferred to a computer and read and the difficulty of this is that like there are all these things that can be done in hardware to make to make life easier but they don't, you know, if there's something that goes wrong in, in the actual detector design or something like that, it is very easy to say, okay, we'll just off put this problem onto the readout team. It's almost like the post-production team on a film, like, oh, that shot looked like crap. You know, we'll leave that to the post-production editors. You know, that's what readout has to do. Um, so it has been this, it has been this brutal climb of learning this technology and trying to get this new technology to work for this. And, and recently I've kind of move more to the software side of things where I'm working on the actual communications with the balloon doing flight software. So I have, yeah, with these balloons and missions, I've now worked on the hardware and SolidWorks and design of it to the firmware side of it, to the software side of it. And it's been, I mean, it's been a huge long road and hopefully Tim will be flying in 2024 or 2025, but who knows with COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And most it probably just pushes it back a year. Yeah, I hope. I won't be around for the flight of Tim. You know, I'm only going to be here for a couple more years. Um, but yeah, I needed to get that off my chest. Yeah, this, it, my God, no one knows about readout. No one has ever heard of this field before, except for very few people. No one knows what an FPGA is. But everything you do, it, it has at some point relied on some lunatics in a basement of some building programming an FPGA. Yeah. I mean, you guys are insane for even trying to mess with that. <laughs> Watching you guys every day deal with the, the IRSOC, just like kind of losing your minds. <laughs> it's like entertaining, but at the same time, it's like, I am so sorry for you guys. Yeah, it's truly, it is like staring into the void. And the <laughs> void is looking back at us. Hmm. Yeah. So then what does the communication side look like? Like, are you, is it? RS yeah. RS four twenty two or something mm. something completely not standard. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, for I'm actually not sure exactly how the flight software works for Blast. So in general, the goal right is that you are able to essentially send a command to the balloon, and your FPGA does some function right because when we're looking at stars in space, we need to recalibrate <laughs> things. Like the way these detectors work, like it is it is difficult to impress the complexity of these things. You know. The way they work is we have to send a, a probe tone into each of the detectors, right, at some central frequency. And when light hits the detector, the output frequency changes and the output phase of that signal changes. 
And uh, to do this, we have to do this for each of the detectors all at the same time in a, in a process called multiplexing, frequency multiplexing. So we have to send out thousands of very specific tones, which hit these detectors and then come back and we have to read in the tones, see how much they have changed, then calculate how much incident power that relates to on our receiver. So the more power that's hitting our detector, the more photons that hit the detector, that means more of a frequency shift. Mm. Um, so you often need to recalibrate because your frequencies will shift further and further. So you have to change that central tone. So there's all of this, all of this kind of like real time work that needs to be done on these balloons that needs to be controlled from the ground because obviously we're not on the balloon with it. So the, 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 the main focus of the flight software is being able to communicate with the balloon and have the system change on command. Um, so what we're looking into right now is this open source, uh, this kind of open source platform called Redis, which uh, is a very simple networking protocol. Um, and I just actually just got in contact with the Redis people last week and told them about our mission. And they sent me the Redis for Dummies book for free. Hey, so I am now reading Redis for Dummies uh, to try to understand the flight software here. Nice. But all, it, all we want to be able to do is send a packet of numbers or information or something through Redis that will hit the on-system chip on our FPGA. That's the reason we call it the RF SOC. It's a radio frequency system on a chip. And that system on a chip will be able to read in that signal that we send, run some sort of Python script built into that, and that Python script will then communicate to the FPGA. So right now, we are just getting basic Redis communications to work. You know, we're sending communications between computers. You know, you send a funny word, you know, like... Uh, I don't know, something like keyboard and response cat or some other dead meme or something like that. Uh, so that's about the point that I'm at right now. But slowly we'll be transferring that into something that you send in a packet, let's say 22. And, you know, on the giant list of commands, 22 is known as the recalibrate command or something like that. And we write a Python script that we load onto the board that goes on the balloon and runs that. But there are so many, you know, there are so many ifs and, and, and buts at that point, right? Like, can this board, this RF sock board that is super new technology, can it even fly on a balloon at 100,000 feet? Can either of you answer that? Because I sure can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's what yeah. it's supposed to be using the... Uh... The, the vacuum chamber for, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's so many things that need to get done before we can, we can successfully have the readout ready for this mission. Mm -hmm. And it's a long road ahead of us. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's why, that's why I love the lab. And that's why I feel, you know, all of us do is because we have these daunting missions ahead of us where there are so many unknowns and you are staring into the void. And the beauty of the lab is that when you get overwhelmed, you just turn your chair to the left mm -hmm. and you just, just hop onto the project next to you for a little while and do that instead. <laughs> Well, that concludes part one of this episode. If you want to know more about testing LNAs, the lessons Justin and John have learned from their experience, and the story of the Great Basement Flood, then check out part two for more basement shenanigans. Don't forget to follow this podcast and like it on Facebook for further updates, and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah. <laughs>